This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Ranjay Gulati. Ranjay is a professor at Harvard Business School and the author of Deep Purpose, The Heart and Soul of High-Performing Companies. In this episode, we talk about how to harness a sense of purpose to create a great team, the power of good storytelling, and Ranjay offers some leadership lessons from the Seattle Seahawks NFL team and Howard Schultz at Starbucks. And stay tuned at the end for a great story about Ranjay's mum as well. This is Ranjay Galati. Ranjay, welcome to Beyond Busy from a very uh, cold Massachusetts. Thank you, Grant. My pleasure to be here with you today. We're going to um, talk about your new book, which is Deep Purpose, um, and uh, your background as a as a professor at Harvard Harvard Business School. I guess that brings you into contact with a lot of different organisations of all different shapes and sizes. Um, tell tell me just first of all when we think about purpose and what's been going on over the last couple of years with COVID. Do you think that there's been more of a focus uh, from people on the idea of purpose and people wanting to have a sense of purpose individually and also corporately? Well, Graham, I think it's very clear that we're facing a meaning crisis in the world today. I mean, uh, you look at the data on great resignations or great reshuffle or whatever you want to call it, you look at mental health demands being placed on the mental health care system, which is flooded. You know, I think people are going through a deep period of introspection. There's a lot of kind of, all of us have been touched by death, illness, and a whole range of things. And so I think rightfully people ex- are interrogating themselves about what's my life purpose and also what is my work purpose? How do I get more purpose out of my work? And and when you ask those questions, I think it's uh, it, it forces you to think hard about what am I doing and why am I doing it? I, I, was, I remember saying a lot in the early stages of COVID that it felt to me, you know, this podcast is called Beyond Busy. It felt to me like what happened in COVID was people were stripped of busyness. People were stripped of a lot of the content of their lives. And what was left was space. And when you're sat there sort of contemplating your own purpose, that's it's quite uncomfortable, isn't it? I, f- I feel like people really struggle to to ask and answer those big questions because they're difficult questions. What do you think? Absolutely. I think they're difficult questions, but once you have an answer to them, think about what purpose can do for us. Purpose is a massive unlock, if you get it, right? If you understand your purpose, it makes you proactive. It allows you to understand what you are doing and why you're doing it. It allows you to prioritize things in your life versus purposeless is where it's fear-laden. It's reactive, mm. yeah. confusion, and periods of angst about why am I doing, what am I doing, and feeling just a low-grade discomfort. So what was really interesting about the book is you talk quite a lot about um, the idea of heart and soul. 
and it feels it feels almost alien to the way a lot of people talk about business right like um just the idea of these huge entities with thousands of people having heart and soul and because like sometimes that comes back to a charismatic individual a founder a leader that kind of thing but also you know just just the idea of what is you know what's the purpose we're trying to achieve what are our values becomes a really sort of important component. So why do you think it's important that, that companies have heart? So let's think about this idea for a second. You know, um, there are hints of this idea already from a long time ago. My late colleague, Sumatra Ghoshal at, from the London Business School, used to talk about the smell of a place. And you can smell a place when you get there. And then I also looked at founders of companies who left and then came back. So if you look at Howard Schultz leaving Starbucks, retiring, I'm out of here, good luck, guys, and then coming back. And his first reaction when he comes back is, Starbucks has lost its soul. Yeah, yeah. I then also started talking to fast... I really understood this in entrepreneurial settings, where as a founder of a company would talk about the growth of the company, they would be very proud of the growth if they were successful to grow. But then they would have this kind of nostalgic look in their eyes about, but we've lost something. We're no longer informal. I don't know what it is. I said, what have you lost? Well, is that informality? It's something. And they couldn't put their finger on it. And that led me to study just that. What did you lose? And actually, I wrote an article called The Soul of a Startup, which is to capture that essence. And sense of purpose was one of the key dimensions that, you know, we begin enterprises usually with a strong ideal and an idea. It's not just a big winning idea. It's also an ideal. We're going to change the world in the following way. And that ambition then nat naturally somehow withers and constrains into what's the big idea. And it's that piece, I think, that you got to hold on to. Now, the question you can ask is, how do you do that at scale? And, and what if you never had it? Then what do you do? Yeah, because you were like, so you talked at the beginning there about um, Howard Schultz at Starbucks. And in the book, you call it something like, is it the personification paradox? And you're talking about it, like just that idea of, you know, that care and that all those those kind of small details that really make that sort of make up that sense of, of soul and the kind of smell of the place. So when you think about scale, like what, what examples would you give of companies that do that really well at scale? So where there's a real purpose, but also it's not reliant on one person, it can, it can scale massively and radically. So I did look at a number of small companies, uh, but I also looked at large companies. So I looked at, for instance, Lego and what Lego did and what Jorn von Nutstrup did over there at Lego. I looked at Microsoft and what Satya Nadella did at Microsoft. And, and so these are large enterprises. Uh, I look at Bueller, which is a privately held Swiss company, but also a global enterprise. And, and you discover that, you know, it's much harder, of course, because when you're operating at scale, you've got to figure out, craft the message, you've got to communicate and cascade the message, you've got to bake it into your system structures and processes in the organization, kind of almost like baking it into the DNA. And if the company's already large, or it's lost its purpose, then it takes a little longer. Whereas in a smaller enterprise, if the founder is bought into having a purpose, it naturally permeates. But then the downside is what happens when the founder leaves, which is what that personification paradox is. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the other, so there's like, it feels like 
with purpose there's a a sort of direct correlation between size and and sort of being small is easier to have purpose and then the other one that it there was an interesting thing that you raised in the book is um the idea of sort of community purpose and societal purpose you know and you mentioned mars in the book um i'd love you to talk about mars actually because i've actually done some work with mars before and it really surprised me when i got the briefing um to work with them how strong that sense of um of sort of community and mutuality was within their brand so do you want to talk about mars and then i also want to then ask you a follow-up question which um uh, you also ask in the book of, of Mars. So the first thing I learned from, from companies like Mars is purpose is not a purpose statement, right? Purpose is what you do. It's action, not just... A, that's why if you say, oh, you're studying mission statements, Ranjay, wonderful. I would have told you, no, absolutely not. Now, if you look at Mars and their whole discussion of mutuality, which I describe in, in the book, I think it's an admirable company. I mean, in terms of the kinds of things, their own sense of belief around how the role of business in society is more than shareholder value. It's really understanding the community and the environment. So they're really on the frontier of that idea and what they call mutuality, which is it's mutually beneficial. What I take issue with them on is saying that, okay, Mars, I buy this idea and I really admire you for all the things you're doing, but you got to then work harder on the products you sell. Yeah. You got to think about you're selling candy and chewing gum still. So think about what else you might want to do. Do you want to even, if you're a, I'm not going to equate them to a oil and gas company because it's not fair, but you know, everyone is on a transitional path. If you look at Pepsi, you know, they articulated a transitional path saying, we're going to make our snacks less salty and less fatty. We're going to diversify beyond cola and have some healthier products like oatmeal I would love to hear from an enlightened company like Mars, how are you transitioning your mix to have a broad... I'm not saying the world doesn't need candy and chewing gum. The world does need candy and chewing gum, but what the world also needs other healthier products as well. And they're yeah. uniquely positioned to do that. And also like Mars do a lot of other stuff, which I hadn't realized when I before I worked for them. So they're... Um, is it whiskers? They do a lot of pet food, don't they? And, and lots of yes. other... So, so they're in lots of other product ranges. And then you think, so if if their whole thing is about mutuality, do they need to just like sort of retreat away from sugar and just remove sugar from the equation? So And so then you get into this question, which I think you asked really nicely in the book, and I'd love to just ask you for the podcast, is like, what do you do when you have this very strong sense of company purpose, but then at the core of your products is something that might be destructive for society and i think you're right to say like um sugar isn't quite oil and gas is it because you can you know you can have sugar as part of a balanced diet and so on but people do get addicted to it and there becomes a problem so what do you do when you're in a company that has a strong sense of purpose but actually like they're a bit evil you know until now we kind of let it go and saying as long as you're living within the legal guidelines of society i mean uh, mars is not breaking any laws you're okay I think increasingly now, employees and customers expect more of business. We've raised our expectations. And, and so my you know, inquiry to a company like Mars would be, what are the other products? A, how can you reduce sugar content? Are you, how actively are you working towards the idea? Not just having warning labels on your packaging only, 
saying, look, I'm doing my best. There's a warning label on the packaging or whatever. What are you doing? And also to change your product mix. And given that you're such a prominent branded organization, what other healthier products are you considering launching? Are you imagining that possibility? You see, my frustration, Graham, in this is what I call doing purpose on the periphery. We make money with our core products and leave us alone to do that. And then I do kind of good stuff here on the side. Yeah. And of course, I'll reduce my carbon footprint. I'll reduce my water footprint. But don't tell me how to run my business because I need to make money doing that. That's what allows me to do all this charity work afterwards. And I'm saying that's purpose on the periphery or what I might even, if I'm a little harsh, would say is superficial purpose, not deep purpose. Deep purpose is where you're willing to let that ideal permeate into your core products and services. Yeah, and you talk about the idea of uh, sort of companies at crossroads, right? And it's like at the moments where you've got a difficult decision to make, that's when you really articulate what your values are and, and what your purpose is. And I suppose the other the other thing that, feels like it's um like harder when it comes to purpose is the idea of long term versus short term right and so all of those examples that we were just talking about it's like well right now and this year and next year these are the cash cows these are the things that are going to make us money so being able to you know move into different verticals into different sectors all that sort of stuff is it's all very well but that's long term and that takes that takes time so like, do you think there's there's some kind of re-gearing that we need to be doing, given that, like you mentioned at the beginning, there is this kind of meaning crisis. People are starting to demand more from companies. Do we need to start gearing how we do capitalism to be a bit more focused on the long term versus the short term? What do you think? Great question, Graham. And I think is, but, you know, here's the the question I would ask you of your question. Implicit in that question is that you have to inherently now make trade-offs between short and long term. So you're saying, eh, you know what, don't worry about short term. Let's, we'll give you a break on short term. Just go think, think about long term. And I think this was a confusing piece for me. Does Can purpose go with profit? There's another question people like yeah. to ask. It's short term yeah. profit is what they mean really. And, or is it one or the other that is about trading off? And I think, is, I think what I've learned is purpose is not an extractive force to tax business and say, you know what, short term pain, long term gain. Purpose can be an animating, energizing force. If the employees who show up to work experience a more purposeful work environment, we know from research that they are much more productive, twice as productive as satisfied workers. Right? Their absenteeism is lower, their own health outcomes are better. So you have a more productive workforce and happier workforce your customers, there's customer loyalty data showing that customers are more loyal. So I'm not saying it's the best, the next holy grail of sliced bread or whatever that, you know, you can suddenly have everything. It isn't. But first thing to note is purpose allows you to animate and energize your business to achieve more with less. That's the first piece of it. But that then says, oh, that means purpose is win-win. I don't have to make any choices. No. Purpose requires very hard trade-offs. But when you are purposeful as an individual, you operate from a place of freedom. 
you understand these are not hard. They may be hard to others, but they're not hard to you. And just the way that applies to us individually, it applies to organizations too. When the purpose is clarified, decision-making becomes easier. Choice-making becomes easier. Your communication with your employees is more tra- and customers is more transparent. And you have a better understanding of your place in the world. Let's bring this down to like the practical level of somebody who's who's working in a business and it feels like obviously there's two there's almost like two things that we can take from a conversation about purpose isn't there one is how do i ask the right questions in order to really understand my own purpose and then the second part is the it's almost like the the tactical stuff that i can do to make sure that i'm really articulating that purpose really well um of you know, both my individual purpose and the company purpose of making sure that they're aligned. Um, so just like on that first point, like you've obviously done a lot of thinking about purpose and I'd love to know uh, for you personally, like what are the questions that you've most um, resonated with in terms of defining your own purpose or that you've seen other people um, do that? So, you know, just in terms of that, the questions that you can ask to help really understand your own purpose and define your purpose. So, you know, I found it interesting. I always, I I first was confused because I got confused between individual purpose and company purpose. Are they two different things? And I discovered purpose in our lives is a layered construct. There's our purpose of our life. There's our purpose from our career. And then there's purpose from our job. And a lot of us live compartmentalized lives. I have my day job and then I live my purpose after I come back from work. Increasingly, people want more coherence, connection across these different constructs, right? So we're looking for that. And actually, I discovered the answer in the world of sports. So I wrote a case and uh, on uh, the coach of one of the successful American football teams, the Seattle Seahawks and coach Pete Carroll. And he seems to have this kind of cult following of players who really want to play for him. And, and, he, and, and his model of coaching is very different from the other, many, most, but many other coaches. Where it's a very demanding transactional model. You perform and you're in. If you don't perform, you're out. He also wants performance. But he has this kind of purpose-laden leadership style. And what he's point learned is that in order to get anyone to buy into the team purpose, which is winning and commitment to each other and all that, you need to help them understand what is their own purpose in life. That people are more receptive to learning about an organization's purpose and buying into it if you also first activate in them their thinking about their own purpose. And then I saw this at scale at Microsoft, where the CHRO of Microsoft, Kathleen Hogan, said, you don't really work for Microsoft until Microsoft works for you. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. And um, like it was, like Satya had this whole thing about he wanted to uh, kind of refresh the culture in a way that then people could start to, to sort of like see Microsoft as a vehicle for their own, their own passions and the things that they wanted to do. Um, can you just talk to us a bit more about, because it feels like a, a really risky, chaotic idea on the one hand, but like, what, what does that look like in, in practice for Microsoft? First of all, Graham, I was also, like you, I felt it was risky. I said, are you telling Microsoft can now allow people to go and climb Mount Everest and go on a biking holiday and do whatever they want? It isn't that, right? 
you're looking for an intersection between Microsoft and its technologies that empower others to do good things. And if you bring an idea to them that helps you feel that you're empowering your customers, then they will. But they also want to celebrate what you're doing in your life. They'll, and if they can support you, if they can support you, they will. Right? So there's hashtag Microsoft Lives. They have kind of talk about your own life. Who are you? Why are you here? What do you do? And by the way, if you have an idea that intersects with what Microsoft does, then bring it to us and we'll try to see if we can do it. Um, and, and so it's that intersection set you're looking for, but it's also allowing you to celebrate and acknowledging as a whole human being. Part of Graham, what we do is we all come to work with a mask on, right? I have my work mask on. And these companies are asking us to take part of that mask, not all of it off. So this the whole idea of bringing your whole self to work is not what they're saying. Yeah. They're saying, you can take some of that mask off. Uh, KPMG did a fascinating exercise in their company where they asked every partner and member of the staff to, on an index card, write down, why do I come to work? And it could be to make money. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. And then they put all those cards on the wall as you walked into the entrance of the offices. And it allows you to understand other people's purpose also. Why do they come to work? So this idea that we are human beings, we understand each other better, we also are connected to our own personal purpose. Why do I haven't thought about this before? Why do I work? Right? Is it money or prestige or status or esteem or peer colleagueship? What do I, why do I work? And being able to connect that. And I think back to what you began with. People today expect more out of their jobs. They want to live more whole, connected lives. This idea of compartmentalizing our life is something we are kind of beyond. Yeah, and you mentioned, um, I just I, I can't let the Seattle Seahawks uh, story go without um, talking about Pete Carroll's mantra is be yourself, be candid, and be kind, which I thought was great. And um, I'm obviously, as regular uh, listeners to this podcast will know, I'm thinking a lot about kindness um, and what it means for leadership at the moment myself. Um, what does that mean to you? So be yourself, be candid, be kind. Um, it obviously had a um, a real resonance with you as you're writing the book. And I'd love to know more about what does that, that mantra mean to you? I think kindness means starting from a place of empathy and non-judgment. And trying to look at the other person from where they are coming from. You can't really walk in somebody else's shoes. They always say, you know, try to walk in somebody else's moccasins. You can't really walk in somebody else's shoes or moccasins. But, you know, you can try to come from a place of non-judgment and understanding. And then caring. Um, I just wrote an article um, a month ago with a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, Frank Cooper, on what do your black executives really want? And it was really amazing to see first of all the kind of the negative experience they have in the workplace but also what they really want and i think what they want is what all of us want which is acceptance understanding consideration caring and when we get that we create one word which is trust and when there's trust it changes the dynamic of interaction among everybody and if I go back to purpose organizations, I think one of the 
two common themes I found in the culture of all these organizations. So I went back and I said, you asked about culture. I said, okay, let me look at these 18 companies I've studied over three years. And each of them had their own culture and they had three, four things that were important to the culture of each company. I put them on index cards and I said, let me just look and see are they patterned. There were two themes that stood out. First, responsibility, deep sense of responsibility. Second, trust. Now, if you operate that way, it changes the chemistry in the organization, right? Economists like to describe organizations as nexus of contracts. We're all in a contract with each other to do work and transact for money. And yes, we are in some ways transacting for money because everyone wants to get paid. But I think workplaces need to be more than that. They are more than that in some contexts. And when they are, magical things happen. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels like, um, you know, when we start to uh, think about that, that sense of higher purpose, like immediately you, you start to see other connections, right? And start to, to, to start to have more of an emotional connection with the people around you rather than it feel transactional or feel like, uh, you know, like we're just here for the money or whatever. And I suppose that maybe leads us on to, I want to talk about storytelling. And there's a lovely thing you talk about in the book, Marshall Gantz's um, self us now model. You're sat there and you're trying to, ask yourself questions about what is my purpose? Does that relate to the company purpose? But then you've got this company purpose and you might be the leader of it or you might not be, but your job as a, as a leader is always going to be about telling the right kind of stories that really connect everybody together to this, this purpose as a company. Um, so do you want to just talk us through the self us now model? So one of the things I was puzzled by, as I said to you earlier, purpose is not a purpose statement, which means you can have a purpose statement or a mission statement and put it out there and repeat it till you turn blue. It doesn't mean anything. Purpose mission statements are wallpaper. The idea was how do you animate, bring it alive, get people to buy into it? That's not easy. How do you get that kind of identification, belief with it? And that's where I discovered that some of these leaders are master storytellers. They tell it not as inert words, but in an animated storytelling way. They want to bring it alive. And coincidentally, I found this work by Marshall Gans, who's a former political activist, professor now at the Kennedy School of Government, and he teaches how political activists mobilize large numbers of people around a story. And he talks about three parts of a story. Self, why does this mean something personally to me? Us, why does it affect us as a collective? And now, why do we need to do something with this now? And it's fascinating because when I looked at the master storytellers who were doing this really well in the organization, because you've got to get, the, you're trying to tap into human emotion. Right? You're trying to build an emotional connect with an ideal. How do you build an emotional connect with an ideal is not something that's trivial. Yeah, when you think about, it's interesting that that comes, that its origins is political as well. Because if you think about, you know, like a, a JFK or a Barack Obama, or, you know, there's so many political speakers who just seem to have this way of starting, like that is almost like a formula that you see people follow, isn't it? Like you start with self, you know, I grew up at the age of X number of years and I was doing this and I had this struggle and 
And then it's like the us, we all have these similar things. And then it's like, and here's why this is a really important thing. Now you can almost like, you like, as you sort of explain that model self us now, you can almost, you can almost see in your head, um, certain political speeches of certain different times. And they all seem to sort of follow that same, um, pattern right like is this is this the script the secret script that they've had all along and we didn't know it's you know it's fascinating i hadn't made that connection but that's what kind of emerged as uh, we talked about satya nadella earlier you know if you and if you i'll make a shout out for his book or called reset yeah where he talks about and you know you see him talking about first himself where he grew up his child with special needs how that had a huge impact on who he is as a person how he imagines himself as a leader he then talked about the collective that being part of Microsoft, which is an iconic organization where he saw many people coming with dreams. And then he said, we are sick. He said, he used the word sick. We are sick. And we need to do something about it now. So you can see almost like, I'm sure he didn't script it with this in mind, but it kind of happened intuitively. You can see that if you read uh, Indra Nui's Harvard Business Review article and her speeches that she's given, where she launched Performance with Purpose. It started with her growing up in a middle-class household in Chennai with no water, which is a human right, and how that shaped how she thinks of herself as a leader. So how do you make it personal? Why this is so important to me? Another way to make it personal, which some people try to do is, uh, in the Lego case, the Lego CEO went back to the roots of Lego. Where did it come from? Where did we start? This company was begun by an iconic individual who had a vision. We've forgotten that. So you're trying to create almost like a sacred space in some way because you're trying to get people feel the connection. That This is something that is not just a slogan. It's not our new marketing or HR campaign. It's something more fundamental and profound. My friend... Tom Nixon, um, who's written a book called Source, has this really interesting idea at, at the heart of that book, which is that with every business, there's there's like a moment where it's formed. And, you know, and you sort of worked with people who were in, you know, uh, sort of business partners, equal 50-50 partners, and they are both there. And, he's, and he would sit with people and say, yes, but who was the one who said to the other, shall we make a business? Or who was the one who had the spark? And you know, sort of recognizing sometimes that it, 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 like in the storytelling, these things almost become mystical, don't they? But it's almost like this like magical little moment or magical little thing and sort of revisiting the, ver the very sort of essence of Lego or the very essence of Starbucks as Howard Schultz did with, as he came back in. You know, like you kind of have to reconnect sometimes to those, um, this uh, slightly ethereal, uh, you know, kind of mystical things. But Graham, just that comment you just said, makes me also think that, you know, as you, as all of us think about this, it's changing the job of the leader in organizations. And, and I think we need to ask ourselves, what do leaders really do? What do leaders really do? And I think, you know, as the late James March, a uh, professor from Stanford once said, are you just a plumber or are you a poet? And, and I think leaders need to be both plumber, take care of the plumbing. You know, the hard wiring, the, uh, the strategy, the organizational structure, the compensation, the rewards, all that stuff. But how do you also do the poetry, which is animating everybody around an idea? How do you walk what Somerset mom called the razor's edge? 
where you're making really hard trade-offs, right? How do you think about this idea and making sure it doesn't decay over time, which it normally will? And how do you then, when you're ready to leave the organization, make sure it doesn't walk out the door with you? Tell us what else you've learned about poetry then. So when we think about storytelling, um, what are some of the, the tips and tricks? What are some of the, the, the things that you notice being most effective in, in how people tell those stories as leaders? I'll first say that poetry is very important, but the plumbing is also very yeah, important. Yeah, of course. So yeah. I don't want to yeah. in any way disavow the plumbing piece of it because I think we need both. But let's start with poetry. I think the first piece of poetry that I found fascinating was how leaders invoke the past while looking into the future. And there's a little delicate fine line here because when you start invoking the past, it's really easy to get nostalgic about the past. The good old days. And you start reveling in the past. You want to recreate the past. You start reenacting the past. You start to glorify everything we did in the past and say, we're going to keep doing it that way. Yeah, there's a thing in the book where you talk about Walt Disney and um, how the board of Disney for years after he'd gone would always ask, like, what, what would Walt do here? And it's like, that's not the right question, is it? Exactly. But, but you want to engage the past while looking into the future. There's a Ghanaian folktale about the Sankofa bird where the bird, the imagery of this bird is a bird that flies forward with its neck looking backwards. So how do you stay rooted while also imagining the future? How do you, what one scholar has called, be nostalgic while being postalgic? Yeah. Like, look, you know, and that tension is one thing that I found very important, that I think they understood how to connect it to people. I think once you go from poetry, you can't ignore the plumbing. You're going to think about the rewards, measurement and reward systems. You're going to think about how you're going to hire and promote and develop people. You're going to think about the org structure, right? How are you going to empower people more? If you trust them, then you've got to learn to empower more. Yeah. How are you going to build collaborative systems that connect people in the organization? I mean, you can't ignore the what I call the, the rewiring in the organization. And then how do you keep it alive? I mean, this is... This is an ongoing project, not like a, okay, got it, purpose statement, done. Yeah, and, and so that rewiring, sort of re, re, reinvigorating, because it also, like, it strikes me that often what happens is when a new leader comes in, it's, it's like the easy way to put your stamp on things, isn't it, is to go back to the value statement and go back to the, the strategy and the, the mission and the vision and the values. And just like reword stuff, but how do you do? But what's much harder is uh, keeping people motivated and keeping people on purpose and keep keeping people invigorated to the same thing, rather than trying to get people to embrace a new thing. Like, what 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 do you think are some of the the most important ways that people can can think about that that question? So, Graham, two parts to that question. I think is first is I think we got to understand that. Purpose needs to be part of the daily discourse. What you're looking for is the daily discourse, right? Yeah. How much do we use it in our daily discourse in terms of our strategy making, in our customer engagement, our sales organization? To what degree do we even refer to it? To what degree do we even put it up saying, hey, we're making these difficult choices today, but let's remind ourselves of our purpose and hopefully it'll help us make our decision making easier. If it's not in the daily discourse, you're not really living your purpose. 
right? That's key. Mm-hmm. So you're looking yeah. for mechanisms to put it into the daily discourse. But I think it's important to also understand what is purpose. People think purpose is something airy-fairy, right? Purpose is, and I, I must say to you, the word purpose has been hijacked. On the one extreme, you have people who say purpose of a business is shareholder value. Make money for the people who have given you capital and risk their capital for you. Others say, other extremes, purpose is anything but profit. And let's be very clear. The purpose of a business enterprise is both commercial and social, right? For the longest time we've had, we've drifted towards commercial. It used to be both. This is once upon a time, we had a very clear understanding of the role of business in society. I think we were drifted towards commercial only. Now the other extreme says, oh, it's social only. And I think, of course, we all know the answer is both. Now, when you do multiple goals, you create confusion because you're like, okay, who is the first among equals? And I think purpose is a way to at least create a somewhat structured way to imagine those choices you're going to have to make as you grow the enterprise. We've got a few more minutes. I'd love to uh, just dig into your work and, and how you work a little bit more. So you're a professor at Harvard Business School. Um, what, is, what does the average day look like in, uh, in your job? So let me tell you about the purpose of Harvard Business School. <laughs> so maybe that's a good place to start. We, I love the purpose of Harvard Business School. It deeply is meaningful to me, which makes my work not feel like work even. Uh, We educate leaders who make a difference in the world. So how do we do that, right? So there are several parts to what a professor does here is the first thing I do is research, right? Advancing our knowledge. You know, this book is part of my research stream in which I'm trying to hopefully put out an ideal of how businesses and leaders and individuals, all of us should be thinking about our lives, our jobs, our careers in all dimensions, right? So advancing the field of knowledge, but at Harvard Business School, we also talk about how it advances the world of practice, not just other academics. So many academics only write for other academics. And I do some of that too. But we also write for the world of practice. So how do we bridge theory to practice? That's another component of that story. Then I want to say we educate leaders. So, you know, my day is, you know, when I'm teaching, which is right now, you know, my focus is on making sure that I create the best educational experience for my students that I can. And, and then we also work with companies. So, you know, we try to, we have executive education on campus, off campus. We want to educate leaders who make a difference in the world. Our our students who will be leaders one day, but also leaders who are leaders today. And so my day is broken up around those things, around research, teaching, and engaging with the world of practice. So that's a the if you imagine the ivory tower we're not an ivory tower we're sitting in the clouds here we try to keep one foot in the real world yeah um and i'm curious to know so obviously you do that through the research you do that through the conversations you have through teaching do you ever just are you ever just walking down the street and and thinking i just want to knock the door of that business and just go and and you know kind of get the smell of the place and like, do you ever sort of extend your, your research to just really kind of random bits of curiosity or just walking into organizations or doing visits and, and that kind of thing? Absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, 
I, I'm just, I, 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 uh, a few months ago, I had this conversation with the, through a friend of mine, with the CEO of a company called One Mighty Mill that is transforming the way baked goods are made and sold from the sourcing, responsible sourcing to the end product. And it began with them sharing with me some of their products and saying, mm. try it out. And I was on this low carb diet and <laughs> my God, it tasted good. It was really good. I'm like, what is this? I've never had bread and bagel chips like this before. And they're like, well, let me tell you what we do. It starts with the kind of wheat you use. It starts with how you mill it. It starts with then how you produce it and what you put in there. And so it isn't just, we have a great chef who's got a magical recipe. So I learned a lot about responsible sourcing and farming. So I'm always, you know, we're always, some of these are many of them, I should tell you, many of them for me are in, uh, interacting with my former students. So then you got the roots into just a whole range of, of interesting organizations and um, all over the world, yeah, I have yeah. to say. And I suppose the ones where you don't have the roots in, the name Harvard doesn't doesn't hurt, right, to, to half open the door. Well, we're lucky. I think we're very fortunate to be uh, able to interact. And, you know, we. I will tell you, a lot of them come on campus also for executive education. One thing that is, I think, wonderful in the world at large is we have finally recognized that learning is a lifelong journey. And so you have very accomplished people from around the world who still feel that, you know, I can do better. And so when you get to interact with people like that, you're very fortunate to be able to then share with them some ideas and learn from them. Remember, our teaching also at Harvard is case-based teaching. So I'm teaching them usually cases. It's a dialogue. Yeah. You see their yeah. own commentary and you learn a lot. Our classroom is a very unique place where we learn and they learn and we all advance our thinking together. So, so we call it a Petri dish for knowledge creation. Yeah, well, it sounds like a fascinating place to be. And we've got a couple of minutes left and I couldn't let you go without asking you to tell the story of your mum that you tell at the beginning of the book because it sort of sounds a bit like a fairy tale. Um, you know the story I mean, right? Yes, of yeah. course. Um, so... Tell us about that. So this is like, you know, you were saying about the multi-generational um, thing before, like this feels like a really important sort of part of your own backstory and history too. So one of the things I, you know, when you write a book, I wrote the book, but I never asked myself why I was writing this book. And it was only when I finished the book that I was being asked, like, why did you write this book? And I'm like, God, why did I write this book? <laughs> I, I, I felt compelled to write it, but I didn't know what was compelling me. And I had to really reflect on it. First were my students. I taught this program called the Advanced Management Program for 10 years. My students were demanding that we need to think differently about business. And I was dodging and ducking them. And I finally had to do it. <laughs> I had two of my friends who nudged me, uh, Matt Breitfelder and Frank Cooper, who are exec senior executives who were like, what are you doing? And Larry Fink at BlackRock. So I was kind of, they were asking me questions really and I didn't have answers to. And I thought maybe that's why I wrote this book. Now, but if I ask myself why, you know, it really goes back to my own childhood and past. When I was a kid, my mother, who was an anthropologist by training, started a business, a risky venture, because she was kind of like, took all her savings and put it into this. And as an anthropologist, she was very fascinated by rural women living in small communities and villages in India. And she found everyone thinks of, even in India, city people think of people in villages as kind of primitive, not sophisticated. She found they had a very sophisticated aesthetic palette. They wore beautiful clothes. They had these beautiful handprints. And so she decided she was going to start a business 
taking these handprints, putting them on clothing that Western women would like to wear, dresses and skirts and things like that, and try to bring it to the West. This is before hand-printed Indian things ever had even happened in, in, in the West. And she started the business because she, um, she'd lo- was it she lost her job, first of all, and then... Yeah, she lost she her basically job. Had, a... So she had a bit of money. And she, what I loved was the bit where she, with all the money she had, basically got a, a ticket to Paris and, and was kind of walking around all the fashion houses of Paris with all these materials saying... Hey, can I work with you? Yeah, that was literally what she did. She had two suitcases, which is the baggage you're allowed to take, check in with you. And then she would carry these heavy duffel bags full of her samples and just walk in because she had no entry point into this. She wasn't even a fashion designer. So she just walk in and say, hello, I'm here from India and I've got these ideas and design and, and this thing took off. But in order to then feed the demand, the demand was sky high. It was beyond her wildest imagination. She had to go to the villages and say, can you make this much for me? And they said, I have one table. I make a little bit and I sell a little bit. I don't. So next thing you know is she was financing them, giving them money to expand their business, teaching them business skills, telling them how they can pack and ship and pay tax and do all these things. And next thing you know, there was a whole community of people who were dependent on her. And she had no problem with that because she was running a business too. So this idea, and she had a very clear purpose, which was not to make money. It was really to bring this Eastern aesthetic sensibility to mm. the Western market. Yeah. And her purpose was to develop greater appreciation for people who may live in rural confines and, and, and poor people, but who have this beautiful aesthetic sense. And connecting the two. Now, of course, she wanted to make money in that too. She was she needed to survive. So I came to realize that businesses can have a purpose. The purpose can have a social and commercial component to it. And when you do, you yourself are deeply inspired and energized. And you bring that to the people around you as well. And I hadn't forgotten this. Because I was, you know, I started working in a business when I was 10 years old. And I continued working with it through all the way through high school. All my summers were spent basically parked doing something or the other, getting fabrics or something, sometimes even going to Europe trying to sell for her. Um, But now I look back and I realize the genesis of my idea around interest in purpose and purpose-driven businesses came out of that. Which just feels like, yeah, just the perfect um, sort of note to end the conversation. Um, Tell us uh, how people can connect with you and uh, how they can get the book uh, Deep Purpose and Anything else you want to share? Well, the easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn. I have a newsletter on LinkedIn too that I put out every, I would say, two or three weeks. It's only one page long. Um, And my book comes out on the 8th of February. And uh, I have a website where a bunch of information about the book is already there. It's called deeppurpose.net. So LinkedIn or deeppurpose.net. Or you can find me on ranjegulati.com as well. Or the Harvard Business School platform as well. But I'm looking forward to kind of taking a three-year project and now sharing it with everybody else. Ranjay, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. My pleasure, Graham. It was really a pleasure talking to you. 
So there you go, Ranjay Galati. And also just want to uh, say thank you to Emily and Pavel for your help putting that together. And also thanks to our sponsors for the show, Think Productive. So if you're interested in training and coaching that will help your people to rediscover their sense of purpose and also to do their best work and make space for the stuff that really matters, go to thinkproductive.com. That's T-H-I-N-K, productive.com. And uh, Think Productive have offices all around the world and people really skilled and passionate about coming in and helping your organization. So just head to thinkproductive.com and it will send you to your closest office wherever you might be in the world. And uh, not much else to say, really. I have, uh, I'm just flopping this week. And so maybe I might sound a bit tired um, as you're listening to this. I don't know. I handed in the first draft of my book on Tuesday. And so the rest of this week, it's a Friday as I'm recording this, has just been like in this blur of just like getting my breath back and just binge watching Netflix and, you know, just trying to not do very much. I'm going to go out for a run and I've been doing some sea swims as well. They found a great white shark in um, in Worthing, like five miles down the road from me the other day which is a bit worrying isn't it but I don't swim out that far don't worry but yeah just doing a little bit of exercise but other than that just um, having an easy few days just to get my breath back after a pretty intense three or four weeks of working weekends and having some family stuff going on that meant I was working pretty hard on the family front as well and uh, yeah just needing to kind of switch off and recharge and I think maybe it's one of those um, moments where it's worth me reminding myself and therefore me reminding you that work-life balance is not a linear thing, right? It's like sometimes you have to go hard out for three or four weeks and then you have to just sit in the dark for a few days or whatever. (laughs) And like that can be, that's balance too, right? It doesn't feel like balance in any of those moments, but actually the overall effect is harmony, balance, blend, whatever you want to label it. So um, that's what I'm doing right now is, um, yeah, just having that little um, little breather, safe knowledge that the book is with my editor and there's nothing more I can do for the next couple of weeks. It's kind of terrifying. Like it kind of eats you up all the things that you could be doing as you're writing it. And then when you when you hand it over, those things are still eating you up, even though you really can't put that stuff in the document yet because, you know, someone else is uh, is controlling it. So, yeah, it's I'm still having all the ideas and uh, yeah, still uh, also having the, um, the sort of thoughts and night terrors about um, whether it's going to be any good, which just kind of goes with the territory of writing any book. But um, I'm also just really excited for people to read it. I think it's uh, it's going to be a different thing from me. Like if you're at this podcast because you've read one of my books before, I think it feels like a slightly different voice. It feels a bit more like the voice that's on my Sunday emails rather than in my books. So let's see what people think. It's, I mean, you know. People might hate it. I don't know. Speaking of my emails, if you're not signed up, it's um, rev up for the week. So every Sunday, a positive or productive idea for the week ahead. And if you want to get on there, just go to graymalcott.com. And on graymalcott.com, you'll find little boxes that you can fill in with your email address. And that'll sign you up to rev up for the week to my weekly email. And everything I'm doing, as always, is at graymalcott.com forward slash links. If you don't want to just kind of check out what I'm up to and uh, everything else. That's it over and out for this week. We'll be back in um, two weeks time with another episode we're starting to get a little bit ahead with our episodes which is good because um 
it's been seat of the pants last minute stuff um for the first couple of episodes this year so it's nice to be getting some more episodes in the bank and then uh it will give us more of a, a nice seamless very relaxed lead up to releasing episodes for you every two weeks i uh, got some really good ones already recorded to drop over the next few weeks so stay subscribed please like and share and all that kind of stuff spread the word and we'll see you in two weeks time until then take care bye for now